Hello everyone, and welcome back to Election Day. This episode is going to be a world news roundup. I'll primarily be talking about Israel-Palestine, but I'll also include some information about Belarus and North Korea. Now, this Israel-Palestine conflict, which took place sort of last week and a little bit before that, is very contentious, and the source you're using, obviously, matters a lot. Even in the U.S. domestically, this is treated as more than just a foreign policy issue, which I'll get to later. And so, I've chosen to use what I think is the least biased and most reliable source, which is Wikipedia. That's obviously a joke, but I do think it will suffice for the very general storytelling I'm going to do today. So, let's get straight into it. Basically, there are sort of three threads to the build-up to the conflict. The first one is Ramadan, which is like the Muslim holy month. So, Palestinians obviously want to be able to worship, but Israeli forces have a lot of the power in this relationship. So, in April, there were instances of Israeli police sort of blocking the entrance to the place where worshippers want to congregate, police turning them away, saying, you can't come in, and then from there, Palestinians respond with physical violence, and it just mutually escalates from there. The second part of this is property disputes over an area called Sheikh Jarrah, which is my best attempt at pronunciation, and this has long been sort of a contentious zone between Israel and Palestine. Basically, before the conflict happened, Israeli courts ruled that Palestinians must leave the area, the people living there. They basically expelled slash evicted them because Israel claims that Jewish people are allowed to move in, but a lot of people, and obviously Palestinians, claim that this is illegal because Israel doesn't have jurisdiction. The third part of this is domestic politics in both Israel and Palestine. Benjamin Netanyahu, who is the current leader of Israel, has been sort of losing his grip on power, hasn't been really winning strongly in elections recently, and so there are some people who suggest that he wants to stoke up conflict and extremism to solidify his base, similar thing for Palestine. The ruling Palestinian party postponed the election, and then at that point, analysts say that Hamas then resorted to violence to build legitimacy among the Palestinian population. So those are kind of the events directly leading up to the conflict. Things originally sort of kick off as Palestinians and Israelis throwing rocks at each other, but then you bring in Israeli police and security forces, and they obviously sort of try to go against the Palestinians, whether that be on the, the evictions or on the mosque access, or just conflicts in general. So you bring in police with grenades and all sorts of, you know, gases and riot 
containment stuff. And then on the Palestinian side, this grows into, like, full-on protests and riots and looting homes and burning buildings as they sort of enter the spotlight. And then the Israeli government deploys, like, emergency powers against Palestinians who, you know, aren't part of Israel in their view. Police are continuing to uh, use violent riot suppression methods and issuing mass arrests. And then Hamas takes this opportunity. They become a stakeholder in this. They start firing actual rockets at Israel, and Israel responds with drone strikes and all that. And all the while, you have Israeli extremists just in the population. So the escalation is pretty straightforward. It's a pretty direct, you know, you light the match and then the whole thing just blows up. And if you didn't already know, there is sort of a inherent volatility to this region because the British moved Israelis into the Middle East in what was sort of Palestinian Arab land and neither of them are willing to coexist with the other side for legitimacy slash security reasons. But there isn't really a great alternative for the situation now, which is sort of a weird two-state solution where there is an independent Israel and a Palestine, but clearly Israel exerts some dominance over the entire region, just practically speaking. So that's a really quick, not really in-depth obviously, but hopefully accurate summary of what happened in Israel-Palestine. And luckily this was resolved by negotiations led by Egypt, Qatar, and the United Nations. Now I do want to talk a little bit as well about the U.S. reaction, because Israel-Palestine is such a unique issue in that it's not just a foreign policy issue. It's treated in a lot of ways more like a domestic one. The first thing I'll talk about is how we had, really interestingly, a huge left-wing mobilization saying, support Palestine, and these videos of, you know, atrocities against Palestinians, there was almost a sort of equivalency to to Black Lives Matter, which was very interesting. To me, what I think it is, is this sort of abundance of empathy on the left wing with regards to the little guy, to the victim. And in Israel-Palestine, it's obviously a lot easier to see Palestine as a victim. They're the ones who are sort of on the losing end of the power dynamic. And there's also a really big craving for justice as like a core left-wing value. And again, as Israel is sort of the one initiating these, whether it be like mosque restrictions or evictions, it's easier to think of supporting Palestine when you think of like, this isn't fair. So it is a kind of interesting thing to see these values that are so often applied domestically 
with sort of oppressed groups in the U.S., that being extended, like, universally slash internationally. The one thing I did want to bring up that I saw somewhere, though, is not to create, like, false equivalencies, not to minimize, like, cultural and geopolitical differences when it comes to applying values, because obviously there are, like, massive circumstantial differences, and it would not be right to equate the Palestine situation with Black Lives Matter, like, a one-to-one -one comparison. At the same time, on the other end of the liberal bloc, you have a very different reaction, that of the Biden administration and his Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. Biden talked about how Israel has a right to defend itself, and Tony Blinken also took strong stances with Israel before they both sort of took steps back because of intra-party pressure. And this is a pretty clear example of succumbing to political interests. Not only is Israel geopolitically important to the U.S., and not only does the U.S. have a historical commitment to Israel, but there is a strong Zionist lobby that exists in the United States. Similar to how the gun lobby is sort of hidden but surprisingly influential, the support Israel at all costs lobby is also surprisingly strong. But the reason this is so interesting to me is because this is so different from how Biden would have reacted to a similar thing in Black Lives Matter, even though I've just said not to make that equivalency. Even though riots were happening, Joe Biden talked more about police reform and supporting the movement because there he did put this value of justice and supporting the little guy first, but not with Israel-Palestine. This, to me, is one of the first times we're seeing President Biden rather than person Biden or candidate Biden, because he is putting, like, strategic values and, like, American interest before this universal application of value. The philosophical consistency is not the priority. But anyway, I was just wanting to talk about how the conflict this time like, Republicans stayed silent. It wasn't Biden against the right. It was the administration against liberal mobilization. This time, it was President Biden, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, pushing back on, like, Representative AOC. And they both did sort of do their respective roles. So, that's Israel-Palestine. Now, real quick, I'm going to talk about Belarus. I'm not really going to go into any depth at all, but basically there's a critical journalist who was flying into Lithuania, and then his flight got diverted into Belarus as he was flying over, and now he's sort of, like, captured in his own country. And I forgot to mention, there is, like, an authoritarian president who he's trying to, like, undercut. Now, depending on whether or not you've been following this podcast, you may notice a similarity to the Alexei Navalny story that I talked about maybe a couple weeks ago. 
this kind of thing is not uncommon. We have a lot of countries in the world that are like broken democracies, or alternatively, authoritarian countries that just sort of have elections. So I think it is important for the executive and legislative branches of government to really say, like, look, this is the thing. This is one of the big things we have to care about. This isn't just another thing on the checklist. America needs to actually try to solve global democracy until it's too late, and we need to push back on things like this, things like the incident in Belarus, pay attention to it, raise awareness, and push back. So I would encourage you to pay attention to democracy issues domestically and abroad, and of course, I will continue talking about it. If you want to actually know about what just happened in Belarus, and not just me not really describing it that thoroughly, I will t attach a link in the description. This president has, like, literally been in charge since 1994. And swinging from dictatorships light to hardcore dictatorships, I'm gonna wrap up with talking about North Korea, given that Biden just met with South Korean President Moon Jae-in this week. As I talked about at the end of my episode on American diplomacy, the key thing here is a coherent strategy. Kim Jong-un, who is the dictator of North Korea, really just wants, like, successful negotiations for him. He wants his regime to survive and not, like, be broken up, and he wants North Korea to remain relatively relevant on an international sphere. Like, that's why he has nukes, he's a, he's a factor. What America really needs to do to alter Kim Jong-un's strategic calculations to make it so that, like, nuclear weapons are not good for his survival, that he shouldn't remain a closed and oppressive regime, is, like, international cooperation. Talk to not only South Korea, but also China, North Korea's, as of currently, biggest supporter. And then we bring like human rights onto the table as not just something the US pleads for, but that like the US can put cards on the line and say, like these are the kind of sanctions you're gonna get. And then the US can work to like get information into North Korea and subvert the regime that way. So there are like a lot of things the US can do, but with a lot of foreign policy things, the main part of it is getting and staying engaged. The U.S. needs to continue working on North Korea, and, you know, above all else, to prove that the U.S. is a reliable partner. The U.S. has undergone some, you know, wild changes recently, and as much as we love to treat North Korea as like an erratic regime, which it is. The U.S. is, in terms of negotiations, probably more unreliable. Although, obviously, it's a much better place to live and for democracy and all that. Like, by pulling out of the Iran deal, the U.S. like has shown that 
maybe we can't be trusted in following up with nuclear negotiations. So the US just needs to continue building up a smart negotiation profile. Bringing it all the way back to the start, in Israel-Palestine, the US should have been more of a contributor, more able to bring that conflict to a resolution and to build peace. Not to bring more conflict and more partisanship and embolden, you know, someone like Netanyahu even more. That need for Biden to build up a good resume is not only present in conflict resolution in Israel-Palestine, is not only present in managing the conflict with North Korea, it's also present in places like Iraq and Syria that the U.S. can build trust with local allies there, like the Kurdish forces. And it also exists with pro-democracy support. Anyway, to sum up this episode, I talked about two examples in Belarus and North Korea, different gradients of bad, oppressive regimes. I talked about conflict and refusing to coexist, And then I also talked a little bit about how international problems reflect domestic ones. So yeah, things are pretty bad, but smart policy can fix most things. So let's hope that happens, and let's stay informed so we can help make that happen. Thank you for listening, and see you next week where I'll be talking about the economy.